Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. School starts for kids in New York State next week amid uncertainty. Fears of a second COVID-19 wave pervade the air. And cooler weather is on the horizon for the capital region. Welcome to a September to remember, for better or for worse. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. The bill is coming due, quite literally. We'll hear a snippet of a recent forum on the fate of the statue of Philip Schuyler that stands outside Albany City Hall. We don't need his statue to teach people about history of enslavement. And we'll hear from two young organizers who started a local movement to fight for social justice at Shenandoah schools. You should be defending your marginalized students who are feeling harassed by your other students who are displaying hate symbols. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to talk about some of the top news this week that we saw in the paper and on timesunion.com. So we're going to start out, there's a lot of school news this week. Obviously, next week is the start of school for most New York students. Some news that Schenectady City Schools are going remote from seven to grade 7 to 12. Albany City Schools are going to start in person later. Many districts threatening layoffs and budget cuts and such. Can you just kind of sum it up for us? The bill is coming due, quite literally. The months and months of the pandemic have, of course, placed stress on local taxing institutions, including school districts. And finally, a lot of these issues are, are being felt at last. It's no surprise as schools uh, and districts begin to consider the best way to bring students back or at least restart their education, as we usually do at the end of August, beginning of September, these districts are, are now having to confront the fact that in many cases, there are tens of millions of dollars that they are going to be missing this year. That, along with concerns over the safety of putting students back into a physical school, are driving a lot of districts to come up with very drastic plans. You mentioned the proposal, which is now uh, apparently going to be the order of the day out in Schenectady and is likely to be adopted by Albany as well, to go essentially all virtual for grades um, 7 through 12. There's also wholesale um, ending of programs for uh, the students of all ages, as well as kind of hybrid programs for um, for younger kids. It's a big mess, 
Uh, it is coming as politicians, including Governor Cuomo, are pressing for the federal government to do more to support the municipalities who have been hard hit by the economic devastation wrought by the pandemic. But um, it, it's, it's falling on parents, it's falling on teachers, and most of all, it's falling on kids. Well, I'm sure as the next week progresses, we'll have a lot more to talk about uh, in that realm as, as schools actually begin the school year at a very unusual time. So earlier this week, uh, one of the top stories was uh, the Savic plant in Albany County. There was a potentially hazardous chemical leak. Can you talk about what happened there? Yeah, a rail car headed for Savic Innovative Chemicals, which is, as noted, is in, uh, in Bethlehem in the southern part of Albany County. Uh, sprung a leak somehow. It was loaded with styrene, that is a substance that it has a lot of industrial uses, but also is very volatile. And it can result in a fire, can result in an explosion if things go wrong. Luckily, none of that happened. There was no widespread evacuation that was called for, but it was definitely a tense uh, couple of hours in Bethlehem, without a doubt. And a lot of residents were complaining of the smell as well, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's pungent. So this week also started off with uh, a demonstration in Saratoga Springs uh, that's recognizing the seventh anniversary of the death of Daryl Mount. Can you just sort of describe what happened there? Daryl Mount was a young black man who in 2013 got involved in a foot chase in sort of the bar zone in Saratoga Springs. He ended up badly injured. Police say it, is, it was from a fall from a scaffold, although um, those who have cast suspicion over his death say that other factors uh, might have been involved. Barbara Lombardo, who is a well-known Saratoga Springs journalist, did an outstanding piece for us that appeared in the Times Union, I think it was about, um, about a year and a half ago now, on the, the uh, subsequent death of Daryl Mount, he uh, was badly, badly injured and ultimately died from his injury several months after this incident. And it was a mess. The police chief in Saratoga Springs was caught in a deposition admitting that he had lied to a journalist about the existence of an internal investigation into Daryl Mount's death. It was clear that a lot of corners were cut in the aftermath. The officers were exonerated, it appears, far earlier than they should have been. And, and activists, amid the kind of national reckoning over the death of George Floyd, uh, have ample reason to revisit the death of Daryl Mount, which is, of course, the subject of a lawsuit brought by uh, his family that is ongoing. All right, let's move to national news. Uh, President Trump is claiming that he will win New York State with the help of upstate New York. What do you make of that? Well, based on all polls and all political history, it's not going to happen, Jess. But he currently trails Joe Biden by more than 20 points in New York, which is not at all surprising. This is a state that has voted for the Democratic candidate in every race going back to Ronald Reagan's reelection in 1984. Hillary Clinton beat Trump in New York 60 to 35 percent. Trump claims that he did really well upstate. He did really well if you're looking at a map of counties, but if you're looking at places where uh, people actually live in upstate, Clinton won Erie County, Monroe County, Onondaga, Tompkins, Ulster, Columbia, Albany, Schenectady, 
and Clinton. And that, of course, is, you know, Clinton is, is the farthest north you can, you can get in New York. And of course, that's not even opening the question of where upstate begins, because I'm, uh, I'm leaving out Westchester and Rockland. Yes, that is a subject of great debate among New York state residents. <laughs> it's going to be a very long podcast, indeed. Along the lines of polling, a recent Siena poll uh, shows that a majority of New Yorkers are fearing a second COVID wave to hit this fall. Can you go into some of the specifics there? Yeah, a new Siena poll found that better than uh, 80%, 86%, in fact, fear that there's going to be a second wave in the fall. Of course, epidemiologists have said that that is quite possible. And uh, in addition to that, a majority of New Yorkers believe that the worst of the pandemic is yet to come, which is not surprising considering these are residents of a state that for a long time was the epicenter of the crisis and is still the state that was hit worse than any other, both in terms of infections and in terms of total death. And New York has largely reopened uh, to sort of normal activity, albeit under certain COVID restrictions, but the governor announced just today, actually, that uh, casinos are going to open next week. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. Before I let you go, uh, and thank you again for joining us, of course, as always, I just want to have you highlight a recent forum that you moderated on a Times Union Live broadcast that featured a debate that's kind of been going on in Albany and maybe even the capital region at large um, about the Schuyler statue in front of Albany City Hall. Can you kind of tee that up for us? Yeah, we hosted a discussion called Moving General Schuyler about Mayor Kathy Sheehan's decision in early June to move a statue of Major General Philip Schuyler, who of course is a hero of the Revolutionary War, a figure in, uh, in the life of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton was married to one of Schuyler's daughters and a local farmer and businessman who owned enslaved persons. The mayor explained that she had heard complaints, both from residents and from city employees, who took issue with the fact that in order to get to work, or in the case of just citizens, in order to, for example, pay a parking ticket, you had to walk past this statue of Philip Schuyler that is in an exceedingly prominent position right in front of Albany City Hall, which, of course, is just across the street from the New York State Capitol. So we had an outstanding panel that included the mayor, and I give a lot of credit to any elected official who you know, sort of shows up to take questions on their decisions, as well as Oscar Williams, who is a history professor at the University at Albany, whose um, specialties include um, slavery in upstate, as well as um, Alice Green, prominent local social justice advocate Avery Schuyler Dye, who is uh, young, she is in college, descendant of the Schuyler family, and Harold Holzer, who is a veteran of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as well as a prominent historian himself. It was indeed a, a packed panel. It was also an extremely civil and substantive discussion, which considering the issues at hand can be explosive. And I, I give a lot of credit to all the participants who 
who really, uh, I, I thought, cast a, a bright light on a lot of these issues without sort of diluting the passion. Indeed, and it was a fascinating forum. Uh, you can hear the, or you can watch the entirety of it on timesunion.com or any of our social channels. Uh, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And we're going to hear a snippet of that forum right now. With that in mind, I would like to turn to um, Harold Holzer to talk about the issue of recontextualization. You, of course, come to it from your experience at, at the Met, but you're also familiar with the, the debate over monuments in public spaces. Can you speak to sort of how the process works and the circumstances where it might not be an appropriate remedy where it involves leaving a monument in its current place? Well, I admit that I've evolved myself on this um, on this issue, this emotional issue. Um, I spoke at Gettysburg a few years ago and uh, suggested that we shouldn't immediately choose iconoclasm as our solution for the discomfort that we indeed feel and should feel in the face of some of these statues that have um, aesthetic value as works of art. Um, I I've come to regret that I said that, or at least change my view. Uh, I'm, I now believe that statues of Confederate leaders, and there are some beautiful ones, I mean, just uh, the Mercier statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond may be the best equestrian statue in, in the country next to New York City's own George Washington, or one of the best. But too many people have been pained walking in its shadow. It sits in civic space as the mayor said, that um, you know, demonstrates uh, acceptance of the person's activities. But I do worry that extending this judgment to people whose main uh, focus in life was not fighting for separation and disunion and the perpetuation of slavery as active traitors to the United States takes us down a kind of a slippery slope. There is no perfection in American history, to be sure. All of these characters were flawed in some way. I'm not saying that the ownership of slaves was not a giant flaw, but slavery did not end as an institution in New York State until anywhere between 1791 and 1804. And I worry that we're going to find reasons to remove every monument in the country if we apply a 21st filter and litmus test to 18th century figures, or even 19th century. Should there have been, is there a way to add context to Schuyler? To remind everyone, he was a leader in the fight for the independence and the constitution, flawed as that document was, um, and also was wealthy enough, like most wealthy New Yorkers of the time, to own human beings. So I'm, I'm concerned, and I'm not convinced that removing him is the right way. And I'd love to know where he winds up. That is crucial. Alice Green, was the knowledge of, of Schuyler's uh, legacy as a slaveholder well known within the black community in Albany? Was that, was the presence of the statue as a potentially offensive symbol well known or a topic of, uh, of ongoing conversation? I talked to many blacks in the community about the issue of removing the statue and a number of even contacted me to express their feelings and their attitudes. And most were not previously aware of who Schuyler was. They knew that he was an historical figure because buildings and streets were named after him 
but few were aware of his role as enslaver of black people. And once they learned of it, um, most agreed with the mayor's decision to remove the statue from public property, which I too strongly uh, agree with. But in our conversations that I had with blacks on this issue, they, you know, they had expressed great disgust and anger about the whole George Floyd thing. And as more attention was focused on, you know, the monuments that were honoring Southern Civil War heroes and enslavers, um, you know, the tension sort of rose around this issue. But I must say that some of the people I spoke to uh, came to recognize and respect the contributions that General Schuyler made in Albany, but they also recognized that his accomplishments had little or nothing uh, to do with furthering the freedom and equity of Black people. I mean, both the, you, you just, someone just mentioned the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, you know, they, they were steeped, uh, obviously, in democratic uh, principles of freedom and justice, but only for white people. What I got from it, talking to people, um, everyone viewed, including me, Philip Schuyler as a white supremacist, and that's evidenced by his, his enslavement and devaluation of black lives. He stole their labor, profited from it, and handed it down to his uh, descendants. And blacks received nothing to hand down in, uh, in, to their descendants, but the oppression and harm that we continue to bear in 2020 in the city and the nation. So it's important that white people recognize that enslavement was not a benign and harmless event that ended in 1865. And so honoring and glorifying the deeds of a man who treated black people as animals, basically, with his bigger, with his bigger than life images and on public property, for us is not acceptable. That's a, a strong indictment and a very tough pivot to go to Avery Schuyler Die to, to ask kind of how the general's legacy is sort of understood within the family. You know, the name you bear comes with a great deal of honor, but as Alice Green just laid out, it does come with a certain indictment. And I guess the kind of more immediate question is, how was news of the statue's removal kind of taken within the family? I don't think that um, our reaction or, or our feelings are very relevant to this panel or this discussion. And I think that um, what we really need to focus on is the future of recontextualizing American history. Um, and as Alice Green said, um, it's to not forget um, our past and to not um, brush what is uncomfortable under the carpet. Um, so I'm very much understanding um, of her points and in agreement with a lot of her points. Um, as far as the removal of the statue, I worry that taking it down from City Hall um, and removing it to, um, as some have who have contacted me, um, have suggested uh, of a graveyard or at the Schuyler Mansion. Not only is that saying to the community that um, this period in history um, deserves to be in a graveyard where things are dead and forgotten, um, 
or in a museum where we have to then pay for someone to curate that museum, someone to pay for the electricity in that museum, and then charge um, citizens of Albany a fee, which further makes elite um, certain parts of our history's complex narrative. Um, so I'm very much in agreement. Um, I don't think how we feel personally bearing the name of the statue is very relevant um, to moving forward because I think this is about um, balancing the narrative and um, making it better for the future. Is there a situation where a statue of someone with a complicated legacy is appropriate, for example, as it's been mentioned, on a battlefield, but not necessarily in front of, of City Hall, where that person's kind of heroic actions were at their height, is a more appropriate place for a statue to sit. I mean, maybe this, this might go to uh, Avery's uh, suggestion, or perhaps um, to the mayor, some of the, uh, the possible locations where the statue might end up. It's interesting, most of the people who've been discussing Confederate monuments, have been saying they ought to remain on Civil War battlefields, particularly if they are sitting on a spot where a particular commander actually launched an action or participated in an action, like Lee near Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. However, the House of Representatives just passed a bill that authorizes, actually not authorizes, but requires the removal of all Confederate monuments from all national parks. I, you know, considering where the United States Senate is at the moment, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it was more of a demonstration of a, a new sensibility. So I'm, I'm not sure the battlefields are going to be an alternative. Uh, on Avery's very good point, I, I love, as a guy who worked at a museum for 23 years, I love what you said about museums, paying for curation, paying for admission, all that is true. But I also want to point out that there is a basic flaw in, these, in the museum alternative. And that is that these sculptures were carved specifically to stand at a certain elevation. So they're carved in kind of cartoonish relief. If you're looking at them head on, they don't work. And museums can't put statues on pedestals within their interiors. They don't generally, unless they have great rotundas or such, uh, they, don't, they can't accommodate them. So I think we're gonna have to get real about whether we wanna you know, just put it on the outskirts or a battlefield that is not a national park. There are gonna be some tough choices ahead and they're going to include not only General Sheridan, I predict, but George Washington, Thomas Jefferson in Washington. New York City Hall has a Thomas Jefferson statue. There's a great deal of debate about that. So I just throw that out. So I think that that's a, um, a good example though of, of sort of why we are where we are, right? When it comes to our monuments, the question is who decides, right? Who decides where monuments are going to go, what they're going to depict? And we have a city that has changed dramatically over the last hundred years. We have a city that is nearly, you know, majority minority. I don't like using the word minority, but majority people of color, blacks, Latinos, uh, immigrants. And, and I think when we, when we think about what is going to happen next, we have to have a community conversation around where this statue goes, what it means to us in the context of 2020, what it means in the context of history. And I think it's a cautionary tale 
for uh, anyone who is looking to create new monuments because uh, the, you know, the black community has not been involved in the conversation um, when we do things like rename parks often. Um, they've come to the table recently and we've, we've been responsive. Um, and I think that we have to look at this as an opportunity to grow as a community and to have difficult conversations about white supremacy, about what it means. But ultimately, there is a statue that causes pain for people who come to work in City Hall every day. You have to walk past that statue to get a marriage license. You have to walk past that statue to get justice. Um, this isn't about sweeping it under the rug, but it is about finding a way to have a really important conversation that goes far beyond just this statue. Is there in fact a danger that removing the statue could tend to obscure the debate that we are having now over the statue? In other words, um, in other words I, I think it's fair to say that over the course of the last three months since the mayor's decision was made, Albany and the greater capital region community has discussed the legacy of the general's um, slaveholding more than it has in, at any other point in the 20 years that, that I've lived here. In other words, the removal of the statue has turned into a kind of locus for thinking about slave owning in our community. And I guess I might pitch that question to Oscar Williams. Is there a chance that by moving the statue, it could in fact be uh, missing an opportunity for bringing that very difficult history of the region in front of our citizens? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I'll admit this has been something that I thought about because on one hand, yes, the statues are offensive to a certain segment of our population. And certainly no one wants to be constantly reminded of some of uh, a group's uh, subjugation to slavery. I mean, in fact, I can speak personally. Uh, I uh, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, grew up all around Confederate statues and streets and highways uh, named after uh, Confederate generals. Uh, um, with that said, um, I do feel there is a slight danger that if you do remove uh, these statues from out of sight, uh, not necessarily relocate them to another area, but out of sight, um, that's just one way of just trying to brush, uh, you know, this unspoken history uh, under the rug. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you leave the statues up, but personally, what I would like to see is, are the statues contextualized in a accurate historical context. Um, um, as for Schuyler, uh, on one hand, yes, he was a so-called Revolutionary War hero uh, and is celebrated for that. Uh, at the same time, he was a slaveholder, uh, something that up until now has been rarely discussed. So um, I would like to see if possible, uh, on one hand, yes, you know, having these statues contextualized in a proper manner, in an accurate manner, uh, 
at the same time. Um, once again, no one should have to be subject, subjugated to being constantly reminded of one's oppression by a statue or a sign or any other type of entity. And we don't need his statue to teach people about history of enslavement. Okay. Uh, I would rather spend that money uh, helping to rewrite the flawed history that we have in this country and to teach our young people about that period. I hope that when the statue is gone and the pedestal remains, there can be some great community discussion about what might be erected for that pedestal. Um, we have been so late in this country in recognizing the contributions of people of color to our history and to our culture, fighting against incredible odds of not even being equal citizens and yet, or judged equal citizens and yet making extraordinary contributions. I'm on a couple of committees that are looking at what uh, civil war, neglected civil war heroes can be, uh, can be placed on the pedestals that are soon to be left empty. In, in, in Richmond, for example, Oscar, um, um, the, author, the Arthur Ashe afterthought at the end of Monument Avenue does not make up for Jefferson Davis and Jeb Stewart and Matthew Montemori and Lee and Jackson. New York City, by the way, we, we only have three women who are portrayed in sculptures in, in Manhattan believe it or not. Two of them are Alice in Wonderland and Mother Goose. One of them is Eleanor Roosevelt in Riverside Park. Central Park is about to install a statue of three suffragists. And it took community uproar to include Sojourner Truth in that monument. But she is going to be included in the monument. Um, Shirley, Chisholm's, Shirley Chisholm statue is going to be built in Brooklyn. So. I think one of the responses, whatever happens here, so let's build some statues that suggest civic virtue among the people we've neglected in history. We have to think about what was happening on June 11th, right? Um, there was no space for dialogue. And, and now we're able to, to engage in this dialogue. And I am committed to ensuring that we continue that conversation. It is not for me to decide where this statue is going to go. It is not for me to decide what is going to replace it. It's for our community to have this conversation and to learn something about one another and our perspectives along the way. After the break, we'll hear from two Shenandoah grads who are fighting for social justice at their alma mater. If you're enjoying this podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. When college sophomore T.J. Sangare attended Shenandoah Central Schools, he says he saw the Confederate flag on campus on a regular basis. Sangare is black, and the prevalence of the flag on students' cars and clothing was just one of the elements of his school experience that made him extremely uncomfortable on a daily basis. TJ and his sister Samira have recently led a series of protests in the community, 
They're calling on Shenandoah officials to end inequities for students of color and LGBTQ youth. We graduated, Shannon. We're not here for ourselves. We're doing it for the up-and-coming youth, the black generation, the brown generation, Asians, Chinese. It don't matter what race you are. If you're a minority, we got your back, Shannon. As simple as that. And we're not going to stop until we get justice. Education reporter Rachel Silberstein recently spoke with the two young organizers about their mission and about why racial justice must be a key part of school reopening discussions. So let's start with TJ. You're the most recent graduate of Shenandoah. Can you tell us a little bit about your activism at the high school and how you got involved? This goes back all the way to my sophomore year uh, of high school um, in 2016. Um, you know, most Shen alumni and students can attest to the fact that it's not rare to see the Confederate flag on campus. Um, and, you know, early in my sophomore year, that became a huge issue for myself, um, for other students of color, and for white students as well. Um, you know, kids would fly that flag on their trucks. Um, they would wear the flag on their clothing. And no one had a problem that people were displaying something that's considered a hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League. That's something that affected me all the time. Uh, every morning going to school, I wasn't thinking about the work I had to do or basketball practice after school or seeing my friends. I was thinking about the kids I passed in the hall every day who would wear a Confederate flag hoodie and stare at me as if they were daring me to do something or retaliate. What, what um, would happen when you'd report those incidents to the yeah, so myself and two other students, uh, we took it upon ourselves to meet with administrators and propose, well, we pr started by proposing policy change um, to get the uh, flag explicitly banned uh, in the code of conduct. Um, and on one of the first meetings we had with administrators, they relayed a message onto us from their district lawyer where they referenced the Tinker versus Des Moines Supreme Court case and they said that in order for something to be banned by the school, it must be considered a substantial disruption and that there simply were not enough black students at Shen for them to consider it disruptive. Um, and, you know, that was kind of shocking to me because, you know, it shouldn't matter if there's three black students or 3,000 black students, you should be defending your marginalized students who are feeling harassed by your other students who are displaying hate symbols. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, in 2011, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 6th District uh, in Cincinnati had ruled unanim unanimously in favor of a public school that barred students from wearing the Confederate flag. And one of those students actually tried to appeal that case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied it. They wouldn't take that case. So to me, that's just the precedent that, hey, schools, you have the power to ban this flag. Samira, can you tell us about how you and your brother decided to start sort of a movement at Shen? After the killing of George Floyd, um, I feel like our generation, we saw Trayvon Martin die and we saw his killer walk away free. And George Floyd, he was like our Emmett Till. Um, and I feel like with both those instances, with Emmett Till and George Floyd, it was something that people who didn't notice before had to see. Um, so like now, like when me and TJ are out and doing these protests, we thought right away, like, where can we, where can we be most effective? And we said grassroots, we start with our community, we start with Shenandoah and we start with banning the Confederate flag. It's so important that students feel safe 
in their schools because I'll tell you right now, these students who I talk to all the time and, and are in our group, they are do not feel safe in school. They do not feel safe in Shenandoah. And the first step to doing that is explicitly banning hate symbols to show to their students, to show their marginalized students that they're really about the equity that they talk about. And so you and your brother came up with a list of demands and it's a very robust list of demands. You guys are like professional activists, seems like. <laughs> um, and it's very intersectional and you particularly focused on um, trans youth and LGBTQ youth. Um, is mm -hmm. that something that you've observed or you got a lot of feedback about from students there? Yeah, well, um, we actually have um, a specific uh, activist in our group. Her name is Jaziri. And she is a black trans woman and she um, really is the one that's helping us uh, with our um, intersectionality demands, especially um, including trans history and queer history and giving a safe space uh, for trans people. And that doesn't just mean like having a group and having a discussion one day of a year. It means uh, consistently checking on these students once a week and having meetings and making sure that they feel as if they are human and that they are treated the way everyone should be treated as white cis males. And of course mm -hmm. we know there's like a, a huge achievement gap for students of color and other marginalized students, student, low-income students. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we saw during the closures in March, we've written about this bit, that disparity has just deepened because, you know, disproportionately the kids that couldn't get online, the kids that couldn't log in and, and do have sort of this like lost learning are children of color. It's easy for administrators to brush it away and say we have more important existential health issues to deal with. Can you talk about like why equity is such an important part of the conversation around safely opening schools? I mean, yeah, you know, and you say like, they keep brushing this off. This has been something that they've been brushing off for decades. You know, like it's time that they make this a priority. Um, obviously, COVID is real. It's important. And so is institutional racism. Um, this has to be hand in hand. You can't favor one over the other. This, like, they have to both be priorities. Um, and for an administrator to say, hey, like, I'm sorry that you're experiencing these uh, these hurdles and this this uh, institutional racism, but you know we have these other problems, so you're going to have to wait. I mean that that really tells you a lot about what they really uh, have their priorities set on. So I just wanted to briefly read a statement from the school district. Mm -hmm. They did respond to your inquiry about the complaints of students of bullying and lack of opportunity. So a spokeswoman for Shenandoah says the district administration and the Board of Education had the opportunity to hear directly from students and appreciate the perspectives they shared. The significance of supporting social justice initiatives is a prominent component of planning efforts from reviewing curriculum offerings to planning for an eclectic array of professional development offerings and various activities to enhance student engagement and leverage the diverse strength of the school community. As the district focuses on executing school reopening efforts, equity and opportunities and outcomes is a predominant goal. How does that compare to previous interactions you've had with school officials? It's interesting, um, you know, because they, they tell us that they support our activism and that they're working to do the same uh, work. And they tell us that they heard us, but 
this isn't about hearing us. It's about inviting your students and your marginalized or inviting your students and your alumni into these conversations and putting them at the front of these conversations because they're the people make, are going through this. Um, you know, we were told by the superintendent, Dr. Robinson, that our, question, our tactics were questionable. He told us that before we start spamming people's emails, we need to read and understand the record of Shen. And that we and that social justice work isn't about being popular and trendy. Um, he told us that we can't have a crab in the bucket mentality. Um, so you know, they tell us that they're supporting us and that they're working for equity and inclusion. But how are you going to tell students who are trying to advocate for other students that they're being popular and trendy, and then go and uh, say that you're doing all this work and uh, for for this uh for this cause have they responded to the specific demands that you've made in your petition recommending that you know the barriers to access of ap classes of course can diversify texts that are used to reflect contemporary stories that center black brown indigenous and queer joy because we need to be celebrated not just shown as victims samira do you want to jump in has the school addressed the specific demands in any way yeah so actually we have um a whole document of Dr. Robinson responding to every single demand and to every single demand he goes in and saying on how Shenandoah is already doing these things and why Shenandoah does not need to do anything else. A lot of it like uh, for example uh, our activist Jaziri the black trans woman she talked about how it was very important that her rostering was correct um, and this is something I talked about at the board meeting as well, a board meeting that was close to the public. And the only reason my brother and I got to talk was because we showed up with 40 people. So Jaziri talked about how she emailed Dr. Robinson countless times, countless times, just to get her name, her gender changed in the rostering. And when we sent that to Dr. Robinson, he responded saying how there's a new program, a, some type of new program talking about pronouncing someone's name and honestly like the fact that he responded that to that in that exact demand I found that just disrespectful we're not talking about pronunciation we're talking about we're talking about someone's identity I was gonna say and I feel like that that really just tells you all you need to know like he can't yeah. even read our our demands thoroughly enough to give us adequate responses That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Enjoy the long weekend.